Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Morning, everybody. Happy Hot and Sweaty Monday, wherever you are. And welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's political correspondent, Sophie Haskison. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning. How are you? Hot, sweaty. Um, now, this is the People's Paper Review, so get into the comments, ask us your questions, we'll do our best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to try driving to Moscow and wait to be paid off. So, what have we got for you today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on news that the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, has had a successful breast cancer operation. Not sure why that's news. It happens to thousands of women every day, but there we are. Um, now, inside on pages four and five is, look at that, someone taking a selfie with the Russian rebel leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, while he was on his way to the Kremlin this weekend. Now, Sophie, he didn't quite make it there. He stopped halfway. So what happened to his great scheme to storm Moscow and change the head of the armed forces because of the catastrophe in Ukraine? So, yeah, Russia has dominated the news this weekend. So just a bit of context. So Prigozhin, he's the head of the Wagner Group, which is basically a mercenary group. So like a private army that's essentially been hired by the Russian army to help fight in Ukraine. And now his leader, this week, their leader this weekend, started kind of throwing around accusations at the defence minister and at Putin, saying that they hadn't been adequately equipped during the war in Ukraine, but also that essentially Russia and the Kremlin had said a missile at the base camp, the Wagner base camp, which is located in the Donbass region, which is in Ukraine, occupied by Russian soldiers at the moment. So uh, there's some kind of infighting. There are accusations of a civil war maybe going to be going on. And the Wagner group started making their way through Rostov in, in Russia. So just on the border of Ukraine, they crossed the border back into Russia on their way into Moscow. But as Susie mentioned, they stopped just before the um, Putin up there. He did a broadcast basically saying that it had been a stab in the back, that there was a mutiny, all of this. So we're, we're seeing the kind of cracks in Putin's leadership here. And then so that sort of happened as we were going into the weekend. And then last night, we end up getting this sort of like U-turn situation where basically it, it, it turns out that um, Prigozhin has then gone to Belarus and has, is now essentially in exile. I'm sure he's very much looking over his shoulder, but he's made some sort of deal with Lukashenko, the um, Belarusian president. So he's gone um, over there now. And it, it seems to be all tied up. But clearly, this is the, sort of the biggest threat to Putin's leadership that we have seen throughout his entirety um, as head of Russia. So, um, yeah, a, a very dramatic sort of confusion for everyone. Um, yeah. but, um, it's been, uh, it was a weekend, one of those weekends where you sort of tend to have the rolling news on in the background and going, has he gone yet? Has he gone yet? Has he gone yet? A bit like um, OJ's you know, very slow motion uh, ride around uh, LA. I'm trying to see Prigozhin, how far he got up the M4 towards Moscow. Now, mm -hmm. so he got stopped halfway, partly because he didn't have nearly enough kit or troops uh, Russia did actually, military did actually bomb sort of an oil depot in that that were on their way, on their path that kind of stopped them a little bit, uh, partly because Putin paid him off. Uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, ne did, negotiated a deal. He's offered 
Prigozhin safe harbour. Um, Putin has agreed that no one will be prosecuted, including the troops, for taking part in the insurrection. It's great betrayal, so he's had to back down. Um, and overnight, Sergei Shoigu, who is the Sorry to throw these Russian names at you, everybody, but we've learned them and we're going to use them. Sergei Shoku, uh, who is the defence minister, uh, who is the guy who allegedly ordered that missile attack on the Wagner Group and is the one that Prigozhin here was, was rushing off to Moscow to deal with. He's been seen out sort of reviewing troops, so he's plainly not going anywhere either. But the question that's being worked out now, really, is whether this was a planned coup, Sophie, you know, part mm -hmm. of a major rebellion where there was other people involved, and it just fell apart, or if this guy, as I suspect, just flipped his lid and acted on the spur of the moment, really, and happened well, to get lucky. Well, yeah, it's really hard to say. We, we, we're obviously talking about this missile. There, there also there have been reports that there hasn't been much evidence that a missile has actually gone to this base camp. So as you say, whether this is, this is planned and actually, you know, um, we've got Prigozhin there, who and the Wagner group are made up lots of ex-convicts you know that it's not it's not regulated like the army in any way actually start Conair. the wagner group is conair everybody yeah. imagine the worst people in the world on a plane with some guns that's what you've yeah. got and we've seen that throughout the war in Ukraine as well. We've had people from the Wagner group admitting sort of ki killing children and pensioners and women. So it's hard to say, you know, Prigozhin has, has basically said he's lost lots of men out in Russia. He's very angry about this. So it's in the background, this has kind of been petering up for a long time. Um, and clearly a switch kind of flicked, be it there be a missile or not something's obviously led him to think i need to take action now it shows us we see putin you know the whole thing that we've always got is that he's got clear support in russia on the special um the special military operation as they call it in ukraine but clearly his support has got cracks in it which we we saw in a, a very very kind of clear and obvious way this weekend exactly prigozhin's got I mean, tell us what you think everybody do you think this was actually planned do you think it was just a cock up what do you think went wrong here because Prigozhin has had contacts with the inside of Putin's regime he knows everyone around Putin he was one of those people until he became this sort of head of this mercenary group there is no way I think that he would have driven on up to rush up to Moscow unless he thought someone there was going to open the door for him mm. so he must have felt that there was some kind of support for him getting there or that the support would appear once he got there so it indicates that people who know that regime inside out know that the regime itself is is rocky and that support is not permanent and the thing that matters next is what happens to putin isn't it because he's been fatally weakened by this he's tried to regain authority by sort of parading these images of sergei shogu around um, and they're clearly making out he's not going anywhere but his authority his ability to survive and withstand an attack from within has got to be under serious question i mean mike says gorbachev survived a coup attempt in 1991 but he wasn't in power for very long after that it does indicate that someone is very very weak so how long do you think putin's got oh gosh what a question it's hard to, i mean like we could talk about this being the beginning of the end, but, you know, many people have been reporting on Russia and the situation there for a long time have said, you know, the invasion in the first place was the beginning of the end of Putin. It's just a matter of time. Like, clearly, this has sped up the process hugely. But but what we're going to see from this may, necess may not necessarily be the end of the war. It may necess not necessarily be a positive thing. You know, Pogoshne, the, the coup has essentially happened because... 
they're so passionate about the war in Ukraine. They want it to be going more successfully. You know, what happens if you've got this head of this big ex-convict group, Wagner, who's, you know, previously worked in troll farms to interfere with US um, elections and whatnot, you know, him at the head of the state in charge of um, Russia's nuclear capability, are, are we um, essentially seeing um, a better outcome there with, with losing Putin? We don't know. We don't yeah. know. But, yeah. Definitely no, isn't it? But it does seem likely that Putin has got a finite amount of time left. In Russia, leaders generally don't tend to survive. They generally tend to die with their boots on. And it's got to be said that um, Putin's enemies tend to die on the wrong side of a window pretty quickly. And of course, if Prigozhin's in Belarus and he's no longer friendly with the regime, what's happening to the war in Ukraine? Because it was his forces that helped take Bakhmut. Uh, and Zelensky, if he's had any sense over the weekend, has been driving very, very fast south and south and east and taking as much land as he can while they're busy doing something else. We'll see. I give it six months. Come back and check on me by Christmas and we'll see if Putin or Zelensky are still where they are now. Now, to the other story uh, driving the day, which is on page two of the mirror, where Rishi Sunak gave a big interview yesterday to the BBC. And we've got a little clip of it. Here you go. have to make difficult decisions as Prime Minister. Everyone can see the context that we're in with inflation and interest rates. Now, I want to prioritise the things that are right for the country. So yes, we're investing in the long-term workforce plan. When it comes to public sector pay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I think is affordable, what I think is responsible. Now, that may not always be popular in the short term, but it is the right thing for the country. Now, there's two points here, Sophie, right? First Mm -hmm. off, this is a man who thinks taking a helicopter 40 miles is affordable and responsible. So presumably that means everyone in the NHS is getting a is getting a you know Sikorsky for Christmas. Secondly, he doesn't have anything except the short term to play with, does he? To make these decisions, he's what was that? He's talking. He, he he literally he has not got the long term to talk about, does he? No. Well, this is the diversion tactic that we've seen from Rishi Sunak over and over again, where he claims that he's in touch with the people by just saying, you know, this is really tough. I really get this. You know, I saw I, I went to his speech last week. He, he did a, this, a new IKEA distribution centre um, in Dartford. And he's there with loads of workers. And you could just see the looks on their faces, you know, just him absolutely not getting it. You know, he was just saying, I, I know this has never been easy. Um uh, I know it's it's going to be tough. And, and they're looking and say, but you don't, do you? Because if that's your one line, it clearly shows um, that you're not properly engaging with the issues. Like yeah. you say, you know, we're, a general election will come soon enough. Um, clearly, he's just like buying time. It's almost this robotic speech of, I get it, I get it, don't worry, I'll sort it out. But um who knows, who knows when's that going to be, you know? He, he's made these pledges to cut NHS waiting times, to halve inflation, to, to bring down debt. You know, over the time since he has made those pledges, they've all got worse. Inflation's got worse. NHS waiting lists have hit a new record. Um, clearly, this isn't going very well for him. So all he can do is, you know, in the future, in the future that none of us know about, in the future where he is not going to be prime minister so it's kind of irrelevant now mike says six months after launching his five pledges with inflation waiting this debt and boat crossings all at record highs the government actually planning a recession is rishi going to have to find five different pledges for the second half of the year i did say mike when they brought out those pledges that they sounded like they should have been carved on a, a gravestone uh, and uh, 
done it of some kind of press launch like Ed Miliband's Edstone was. And Kevin Maguire in his column today in the paper is pointing out that although five of those big promises, inflation is stuck at 8.7 percent. The boats are increasing, not stopping because it's summer. Economy is stagnating, NHS waiting lists are higher, and national debt is as bad as actually worse than it's ever been, really, since 1961. We're at 100% of GDP as national debt. And so all those things that he's pledged, Soph, are... I mean, how is he going to say, yes, I know, I know. Well, they're still my aim. They're still my ambition. I do know that they are not where they should be. How's that going to... How is any of this going to help him? I think it's this thing that he's almost trying to bring out this like sense of personality that like he gets it that that he is sympathetic you know uh, he said with these pledges you know that they are personal pledges for him you know why would he have made those pledges um if if he couldn't keep to them and he sort of says these lines and it's like well actually let's just look at all the evidence that's going on like let's look at the cost of living crisis let's look at people's living standards let's look at the amount of time people are having to wait to still get NHS treatment with the list you know the waiting list hitting 7.4 million for the first time um this month you know he seems to be sort of like losing grip on reality um of british people in this in this country and i feel like that's part of him you know he's he's a maths whiz he's a he's a banker um you know he's got a very financial brain and he's kind of got those those this that he tries to use facts in, in, in this weird sort of way that the actually just like omits lots of other things of people's lived experience um so yeah like Deborah says there he he doesn't have that lived experience does he He, she says he doesn't have to when did he ever go to a food bank he's talking about ever having any experience of what happened I don't know how he got to Dartford but when he went to Dover the other day he went by a helicopter which shaved about five minutes off the journey time if he'd gone on the train he could probably done more work on the train because it was quieter (laughs) But, of course, that's where the plebs go. I mean, he may be a, a fairly a nicer, more decent, well-intentioned kind of guy. But as Deborah's pointed out, he can never hope to understand and know what not having enough money means. Because to him, it's a spreadsheet and it's a, it's a column that has got negative numbers in. But yeah. he's never been at the till having to put something back on the shelf because he's 18 pence short, is he? Ever. Well, we've seen it. We've seen the kind of gaffes that he's made with that of, you know, putting his contactless card not on a uh, car machine but up to the scanner. And, and we saw Ben Elton, the comedian, yesterday on Laura Koonsberg's show, sort of saying, you know, I wanted to have him, that he was different, that he wasn't this sort of kind of, you know, liar, clown-like figure like Boris Johnson. But he said, you know, he's come to the conclusion, like everyone else, that he is, and I use his words, a narcissistic sociopath. He was kind of just, you know, on this on this line of, of power, you know, him and his wife are worth 529 million and he stands there and he says in this robotic speech, I get it, I'm there for you, hold your nerve, I know it's tough. And it's and people were starting to see through that. No, you don't actually, things are getting continually worse for us. How can we possibly believe that things are gonna get better now when you've been saying it for months um, and nothing has changed? You know, this week we're finally gonna get the NHS workforce plan. Um, 
And we're, you know, people in the NHS for months and months and months have been saying the key problem with NHS, with pay, with all the issues there with the crisis is retention. We need to bring up pay so people stop quitting. And so far, what we've got from the NHS workforce, nothing to do with pay, nothing to do with retention. We're going to double medical places, valid, and we need that to happen as well. But with the back door open and nurses and doctors flooding out, it's not going to fix it. And that's the same thing, not listening to people, not engaging with the actual issues. Like you say, spreadsheets in the office, um, uh, and the problems just keep continuing. Yeah. Well, it's not his mum and dad in the queue at the NHS for exactly. that, you know, outpatient appointment for this, that, or the other, is it? Um, yeah. His heart will go to uh, Harley Street, and that's that. Leslie says, why do they keep lying to us? They tell us that technically we're not in a recession. If that were true, why do we have a cost of living crisis? It feels like a recession. I think it's fair. They're talking about repossessions and mortgages being unaffordable and people aren't able to eat and feed their families. Then that feels a lot like a recession, generally, to me. Kath says, good morning. Morning, Kath. Uh, Rishi Sunak on Kunzberg. Dear me, this was a man who we saw deliver a speech to his fellow Tories in Royal Tunbridge Wells telling them he'd redirected funds from poor areas Labour had helped to them. We saw then what he was up to. Um, mm. It's true. As someone who lives not far from Tunbridge Wells, I will tell you there is poverty around here. And um, there are areas of, of concern, especially even in the borough of Tunbridge Wells, but nowhere near as bad as in some other parts of the country. Mm. So what we've got here, and that's one thing we should worth quoting, I think, what Ben Elton said. So he said that um, he... He thought he called this an Orwellian, meaningless, evasive word salad, mm. which is about right. Uh, and then says that he is a, just as much of a mendacious, narcissistic sociopath as Boris Johnson was. Um, how is Sunak regarded in Westminster? Because they're the ones who put him where he is, the, the backbenchers, the Tories. He's more professional and harder working. Number 10's harder working and burning the midnight oil actually at work rather than partying, when they were under Johnson. But there's still very little legislation coming through Parliament, isn't there? They're, they're not got. They're still going home at four thirty some days. There's still nothing but sort of promises and no real delivery. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of this thing where we have, you know, you know, who is Rishi Sunak? What does he properly stand for? For for so long and still now, especially with having Boris Johnson in the news so much, he has been a welcome, not Boris. That doesn't actually mean anything to be not someone else. Um, you know, I think people in Westminster, from what from when I've spoken to Tory MPs, and they, they often say, you know, we can even see through him. There's there's this robotic sense to him where it feels like he's learned a script and yes he's very good he, he knows his stats you know he he can come off with the sound bites very quickly but it kind of feels quite emotionless there's there's not that passion and that connection you know uh, as I mentioned seeing him at, at speeches before it kind of speak, speaks to this sense of him, him smiling through you know I went to one before and he was speaking to a room full of NHS workers and anytime they'd ask answer a question he would smile at them and be like you know uh, before I even answer I just want to thank you because you are doing the best job ever and it, there's a sense of patronization where you're telling me that but yeah in the next breath you're, you're not willing to raise my pay at all you're, you're not engaging with the fact that of, of what the cost of living crisis actually means for people you know 
my colleague Lizzie Buchan yesterday, uh, well, the, today had a paper in uh, a story in the paper, which was talking about 1.7 million children being in households where they're, they're struggling to buy food and they don't have proper food security. We've seen huge figures um, around um, hygiene poverty as well. You know, children having to wash with um, washing up liquid. You know, they're, they're not being able to brush their teeth with toothpaste. Um, and we never see that kind of emotional sense of Rishi Sunak actually saying um, saying things. And you know, Tory and See, see that too. You know, they, they don't think it's completely over. You know, that it's still it's still a while until a general election in some way. So that they're you know they're to use a quote holding their nerve um, to see whether the Tories will get in. But and uh, uh, you know, there's not a huge amount of confidence. I don't think in Rishi Sunak. No, I think they're just waiting to see how many they can get on the lifeboats. That's what his job's there for, really. He's not Boris Johnson. He's not Liz Truss. Marion says, I think Sunak's been taking acting lessons. It's all a pantomime. What do you think, everybody? How do you think Sunak's doing? Are we being unfair? He's only been in the job five minutes. Is he allowed to have a bit of um, teething trouble? It's not his fault the economy's in the state it's in. Well, he was Chancellor for a bit, wasn't he? But, you know, it's Liz Truss, isn't it, really? Is it perhaps, you know, we should all be a bit more tolerant and forgiving of him? He knows how to make himself rich. Maybe that would work for us. Marion mm. goes on to say, sack Helen Waitley. I just watched her on GMTV. She's totally useless and has no fight. We need someone who can genuinely, loudly and effectively argue for the NHS, not a limp lettuce. They do yeah. seem to think, don't they, Sophie, that the NHS is a cost. They look at it as a spreadsheet, look at the total amount of money that it costs and go, well, that's just too much. They never see, because it's not on their spreadsheet and you can't account for it in the same way, the, the pluses of everyone living longer and everyone having the screening and everyone getting the treatment and everyone having healthy births and things like this. They don't see the social, the economic benefits you get out of the NHS it's just a cost then yeah totally it's that short-term vision that we see across every part of politics be it education be it health um you know we can we can look at things say like obesity like the obesity strategies or sort of commitments have been dropped time and time again we had Boris Johnson briefly bring them back kind of more of a personal motive when you know he was very sick with um COVID um and, and decided to sort of bring back obesity on the political agenda but you know obesity is a huge risk factor for so many different um, other diseases, be it heart disease, be it diabetes. And actually focusing and doing something on obesity will help the NHS in general. Um, you know, that's why we'll be very interested to see that long-term workforce plan later this week. How long-term will it actually be? You know, we, as I mentioned before, if retention's not in there, you know, we, we're not fully thinking about the success of the NHS. Again, that short-term vision of saying, well, COVID's had a knock-on effect. There's nothing really we can do. Um, everyone's got knock-on effects around the world. And well, actually, no, no, they haven't. We've got much worse situation here in, in many different um, aspects, which, again, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to face up to, doesn't want to look in the long term. And that's, that's politicians looking for tick boxes. What did I do during my short tenure as prime minister? What kind of, um, uh, you know, achievements will be at the top of my Wikipedia page? Age that yeah. I can shout and win about rather than you know what is actually right for the public you know have some integrity like you said you would and, and care about the British people for once yeah now Richard says he's no better than Johnson he's still using lies when replying to questions I do tend to think so if he went to these events and just said look I know I'm disgustingly rich compared to everybody else here and I did fly in on a helicopter and now I don't know what it's like to only have one loaf of bread that, that's white sliced to get through the week but I do know how to make money. So we need to do this, this and this, and then yeah. we'll get there. 
you know, just yeah. be honest with people. Don't just pretending mm-hmm. that I get it. I'm 100% with you guys. It just it's mm-hmm. clear. Exactly. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. Um, so when he gets through this sort of short-term blip, he's insisting all this is, the economic crisis. Mm. He's got to face with a general election in very short order next year, probably, which he said he doesn't mind if he's the least popular person on the ballot paper. He's literally just said that. I don't mind being unpopular next year. Um, perhaps that is him being really honest. He, you know, he doesn't want to be in the job for the difficult bit, which is actually hauling the country out of it. He'd far rather that was Labour's problem, wouldn't he, really? Yeah, I think so, totally. And, you know, that, that doesn't give much confidence to, to people in the Tory party or Tory supporters when you've got um, the leader of your party is actually saying, uh, you know, I don't mind um, being unpopular, you know. You should want to be popular. You should want to be doing things that are actually helping the British public. You know, we kind of got this with um, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng that's saying, you know, we're going to do these things and it's, it's, it's risky, but we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. We've got a vision. Just trust us and it'll all work out in the end. But it clearly, clearly hasn't. And we're kind of getting the same sense with Rishi Sunak now, which is being, you know, things are going to be okay. Just trust me. I know they're awful now but they will be okay but but people don't want to hear that things are not okay right now and Rishi Sunak just thinks that they'll get worse and worse what is he waiting for is he waiting for more deaths more excess deaths from from poverty people die from poverty they die from starvation and like does he realize any of these things I don't know what he's waiting for before he actually um pulls his finger out and starts helping people who need the help now not in some imaginary future down the line no, well, it's not imaginary future. Maybe he gets his green cover back and is cleared off anyway. Mm. Um, now, elsewhere on that page, sort of down in the bottom corner, there, very quick before we go on to good news, it says that the, this is the thing about excess deaths. The UK has the second highest rate among 19 nations. We were 18th out of 19 nations for avoidable, preventable deaths, things like heart attacks and strokes that you can easily treat it if you get to them in time. Uh, we're also fourth worst for preventable deaths from cancers, and we've got fewer MRI scanners than anyone else in that study. That's why I'm ready to be unpopular. And down in the bottom corner, everyone's dying. They don't have to die. But they're dying anyway, because this guy doesn't see the economic or social benefits of saving people from things that they could be safe from. They could go on to be tax generating units for years to come if you fix their cancer. But no, no, let's just, they'll just die. Whatever. Who cares? They're only poor. They haven't got a helicopter. Who cares? <sighs> Right. Um, Thank you for that, Sophie. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Um, We're going to try and calm down now. There is some good news in the world. It doesn't involve anything to do with politics. Here it is. Now, Dr. Ellie Bond, who was doing some uh, charity work in Zambia, and her husband, Crispin Mason-Jones, have helped to save a women's football team uh, in a town in Zambia by delivering kits to help the women and 170 children who all play there. It's called Project Luanga. It's been supported by the Mirror and reported on before. And it's helped a team called the Mfui Mags, I think they're pronounced, which is 5,000 miles away from their home in Newcastle. Uh, But as a result, the women's team are now competing in a local league and are going from strength to strength. It's like Wrexham, but Africa. (laughs) Is this proof that sport washing, you know, doing something for trying to sort of improve people's lives by investing in sport can be so much likelier to clean clean your hands and make you look good uh, Mm -hmm. if you did it in places like Zambia rather than, I don't know, uh, people who oppress women uh, in Newcastle, for example. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally. Yeah. When we see this f- football sport, essentially, it's meant to bring communities together. You know, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be lively. Um, it's meant to create love, laughter, joy, all of these things. We, we have it in this country where it's filled with filthy money. It's so rich. It's so over the top. You end up getting um, it, it's filled with sexism, homophobia, often spaces um, which don't always deserve to have huge amount of money pumped into them mm. and seeing this um as a, as a community kind of the community spirit and and also i think we have to mention this is uh, it was the 30th anniversary in april of, of the zambia men's team who, who tragically lost their lives when they were on their way to a world cup qualifier um they're on their way to senegal and um there was a problem with the engine and um there was a plane crash into the sea and you know 30 years on you could see the spirit of what football means in in the country you know it, it brings people together and um yeah it's a, it's a heartwarming a good news story which and they are out there good news stories i think dressing women and then investing in football to pretend it doesn't happen is probably quite bad whereas uh helping women play some football and investing in that uh is probably quite good so maybe uh, saudi arabia could pay attention to that and uh, have a little look and see how it works now i think we have got some uh, comments that have come in and we're going to have one to wrap at the end strip bear possibly not his real name says putin was voted in how can you judge when you look at your leader yeah sunak wasn't voted in by us but he was at least voted in by the conservative party who had been voted in by us that's mm. the way the system works and the one thing we've got strip over russia is that when you have um a problem with a leader who needs to go there are processes in place for a peaceful transmission of power. So someone gets voted in, they get voted out, something's gone well, something's gone badly, their party can move against them, or there's a general election, and they just hand the reins over and they go, fair enough, I've lost. What happens in Russia? What happens in Russia? Cups of poison tea is what happens in Russia. Instability, violence, nuclear codes all over the floor and no one knows what's going on. That's the problem that the whole world has got with the way that Russia handles a a change of power. It doesn't happen neatly and nicely. It happens with a great deal of instability and trouble and problem for everybody else. And Zelensky is talking now in Ukraine. The Ukrainian leader is warning that uh, Putin may stage an attack on the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant, which, of course, would cause problems with how NATO would react to that. So we have managed to end on a bad point about politics. God damn it, Strip. Why did you do that? Um, we were trying to end on something nice about football, but here we go. That's where we are. Um, if you want to support Project Luanga, uh, they are on uh, L-U-A-N-G-W-A is how you spell it. And they will be on the Internet somewhere and you can find them. You can find about them, Fooey Mags, and try and support them if you can, because that probably make you feel a bit better than watching the news today, I suspect. Although, hooray! The Duchess of York is still with us. Um, Thank you, everyone, for taking part. Thank you, Sophie, for explaining all of that. Uh, We will see you all again on Wednesday, everybody, for another edition of the News Agenda. Till then, tatty bye.